We are in week three. We started off with creation, beginning at the beginning. Then we moved through the Pentateuch, prophets, writings, night wolf, dive into the gospels, and a couple of epistles. Um, We're going to go backwards into the Old Testament for a little bit of background to our passage in the Gospels, so we're not leaving the Old Testament completely. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) We still love the Old Testament, even as we go into the New Testament. So, uh, really, the only occurrence of the description of God as creator of heaven and earth in the Gospels comes in the form of Lord of heaven and earth. And that occurs in a parallel passage, Matthew 11, verses 25 to 27, and then the same passage appears in Luke 10, verses 21 and 22, with some slight variations. So open up with me to Matthew. We'll kind of focus there, and then we'll touch on the passage in Luke here and there. So you might want to stick a little piece of paper or your finger at Luke 10, and we'll flip back and forth there. But in this passage that occurs in both of these Gospels, it's a prayer of Yeshua where he praises God, addressing him both as Father and as Lord of heaven and earth. Worship and prayer are common contexts in which we find this description of God in the Old Testament. And also in the literature of the Second Temple period. Prayers that refer to God as creator of heaven and earth in the Old Testament, for example, include the prayer of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 23, Hezekiah in 2 Kings 19, and also Isaiah 37, Jeremiah in chapter 32, the Levites in Nehemiah 9, and David in 1 Chronicles 29. So here we have Yeshua also referring to God as creator or Lord of heaven and earth. And really, in a... In a belief system where there really is only one God who created all things, the notion of him being Lord of heaven and earth goes very much hand in hand because the one who created all things, of course, would be sovereign over all things. So there's a little bit of a difference in understanding creator versus Lord, but they also overlap quite a bit as well. And because this is the only occurrence really in the Gospels, we're going to go ahead and see what it is about these ideas of God as Father and and Lord of heaven and earth that might help us understand what Yeshua is getting at in this prayer and the significance of this description of God. We'll see that the motivation for praise in Yeshua's prayer in Matthew 11 and Luke 10 concerns God's revelation to some but not others based on his good pleasure. The verse immediately following in both Gospels is a statement about Yeshua receiving all things from the Father mutual and exclusive knowledge of one another and the Son's role in in revealing the Father.
father to others. <clears throat> so we'll start off by looking at, I said, uh, Matthew 11, verses 25 to 27. It says, At this time, Jesus said, or Yeshua said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So a question that came to mind as I looked at this was, how often is Father used in the New Testament compared to this description of Lord of heaven and earth? Because in this, in this short passage, we have Father appearing twice in the first part of the passage as a direct address and three times uh, in, the verses that, in the verses that follow in both Gospels in the third person. So it's used five times in this short passage, but the reference to Lord of heaven and earth only occurs once. When we look at the Gospels, Yeshua refers to God as Father 44 times in Matthew four times in Mark, 17 times in Luke, and 119 times in John. A couple of scholars who have written on this topic of God as Father observe that this salutation or the designation of God as Father occurs approximately 260 times in the whole New Testament, not including Father metaphors. And apart from the, the term God... For God, Father is the most common way of referring to God in the New Testament. When we look at the prayers of Yeshua, he addresses God as Father in prayer three times in Matthew, in addition to what we're looking at right now in Matthew 11. Once in Mark, four times in Luke, aside from the one that we're looking at, and nine times in John. So although reference to God as Father is pretty frequent in the New Testament, it's not nearly as common in the Old Testament. Um, it is there, but these scholars, Feldmeyer and Spikerman, who have who've looked at these, um, this description of God as Father, suggest that perhaps God in the Old Testament is not referred to as often as Father because other groups of people refer to their deities with that term. So that could be a way in the ancient Near East that the Israelites wanted to be distinct. But there are nine occurrences of God speaking of himself as Father, and there are six occurrences in which a person refers to God as Father. In the Old Testament. In the Old Testament. Yeah. So again, when you compare the New Testament and Old Testament, there's quite a, quite a difference in the number of occurrences of that reference to God as Father. So then when we come down to the occurrence of this idea of God as Father coupled with the reference to God as creator of heaven and earth or Lord of heaven and earth, there really are only four passages in the Old Testament that would come close to fitting that coupling as we see Yeshua doing here in his prayer. And of those four, Isaiah is the one that specifies God not just as Creator, but creator of heaven and earth, as we've been tracing that particular description through 
both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so that occurrence is in Isaiah 45. So in Isaiah 45, we see God referred to both as Father and Creator of heaven and earth. So we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at that because I think that because it's such an unusual description for God um, in the New Testament, and coupling it with Father is also unusual. Looking at occurrences in the Old Testament where that happens makes it more probable, more likely that this passage could be what is... Yeshua has in mind when he's referring to God in these terms. So what is significant? Again, this is the question we've been asking. What is significant about this particular description of God, creator of heaven and earth? And here it's coupled with Father. So let's flip back now to Isaiah 45, and we'll just look at the first part of that chapter. So when we look at Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 1, It says, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and I will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places so that you may know that I am the Lord. The God of Israel who summons you by name. So what do we have going on to this point in the chapter? Well, he's making known that he is the God of Israel. That's a very distinct title for him. Yes. And who is he addressing? He's talking to Cyrus. And Cyrus is who? A Gentile king. A Gentile king. <laughs> yeah. So we've got God, the God of Israel, saying... I'm going to do all these things, including, verse 3, I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. So God is kind of handpicking Cyrus for his purposes. So we'll keep going now, verse 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Does this sound at all familiar? Do you see some similar thoughts, ideas, themes that we looked at before, not just in Genesis, but even going into Jeremiah? Then he continues, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children 
or give me orders about the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created humankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. So here we've got the imagery of God as father, right? Talking about his children. He's mentioning a father and a mother. Who would question? What is this, what is this that you have brought forth, their child? <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. Just like you wouldn't question a potter. The, the clay doesn't question the potter about, what are you making? <laughs> what are you making me into? And then he goes on and couples this idea with creating the, the heavens and the earth. And then he goes on again. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. But not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. So what do we have God saying here? He's going to use Cyrus to do it. it. And it seems that his argument here is, okay, Israel, I'm using this Gentile king to accomplish my purposes for you. And really, you have no place to question that. Why? Because I am your father and I am the creator of all things. So God cares about his people, his children, and he is sovereign over all things. And that's an important basis for what he'll be doing, using Cyrus to accomplish his purposes. So the gist, I think, as we look at Isaiah 45, and there are more more verses we could refer to. Um, If you jump down to verses 18 and then 20, for this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. Remember what we said about Genesis 1 and 2, that God creates three realms, the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and he populates them with life to be inhabited. And here he's talking specifically about the earth, to not be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And then in the next couple verses, we again have this contrast of idols that are made of wood or are inanimate who are unable to save. They're unable to accomplish anything. And so again, we see God in contrast to that. So now that we've kind of gotten a little bit of a view of of Isaiah 45, Let's go back to Matthew, because there are elements similar to those in Isaiah 45 that occur in Matthew 11, what we just read, and in Luke 10. So we'll look at, we'll focus um, first at verses 25 and 26 in Matthew 11. In addition to the acknowledgement of God as Father and Lord of heaven and earth, which, again, were prominent ideas in what we just read in Isaiah 45, Yeshua recognizes that God both conceals, when we look at Matthew 11.25, at that time, Yeshua said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden things from the wise and learned. 
and revealed them to little children. This motif of hiddenness and revelation was also what we read in Isaiah. Verse 3, God will give to Cyrus treasures described as dark and hidden and unseen. Unknown to people, but God knows. And he will reveal what is concealed to humans, he will reveal. Then there's also this aspect of um, God being one who hides himself as well. When we look, we might want to flip back to Isaiah 45, verse 15. It says, Truly you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior of Israel. This is an interesting concept. And this particular verse in Isaiah, there's some discussion. Who is he talking about? Who is God hidden from? Is it the nations or is it Israel or the prophet, someone associated with Israel? Which, Which is it? Well, on the one hand, the Lord has proclaimed repeatedly in this chapter that through his interaction with Cyrus, he will accomplish his purposes for Israel and the nations will recognize who he is. Right? We look back on verses 3, the second half, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. He reveals himself to Cyrus. And then in verse 6, the second half of that, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So there does seem to be a sense in which with God using Cyrus, it will also be revealed to the nations who God is. Verse 14 and then verses 22 to 24 also seem to hit on that in in Isaiah 45. In this sense, God is hidden from the nations but will be revealed through his actions and his declarations. Again, what he does and what he says reveals who he is. We talked about that a little bit related to the exodus, the action of freeing Israel from Egypt and then his giving up his word at Sinai. So again, he's revealing himself through his actions and his words. On the other hand, though, the problem requiring a solution that warrants God's using Cyrus is twofold. One is that Israel is in exile, and two, Jerusalem is in ruins. If we look in 45:11 to 13, that's what it's talking about. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker, concerning things to come. Why do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands as I made the work? the earth and created it. I will raise up Cyrus, verse 13. In my righteousness, I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. So that's why he's using Cyrus. Um, Are they under exile? Are they in exile under the rule of Cyrus at this time? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Persians have taken over. Mm-hmm. And now... Now Cyrus is the one who allows Jews to go back to the land. Not everybody does return, but some do. So to is, hmm? I'm just thinking, you know, doesn't God just use, he he always, you know, works through nations. I was thinking, you know, during the times of Esther, there he was again. You know, now during the Holocaust, there he was again. He's always and showing himself, it seems like, through mm-hmm. history, through one event or another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, through his actions and through his words, he reveals himself. And so here again, we're, we see this 
Again, we're looking at Isaiah 45 because it is linking this idea of God as Father and Lord of heaven and earth, and this is what Yeshua is addressing him as in his prayer. So we're getting some background for this. Interesting uh, that he uses this Gentile king mm-hmm. to restore them. And he also said earlier uh, that the Babylonians were his hands yep. to destroy them so that, uh, you know, he's still the God of heaven and earth who controls everything. Yep. Sometimes to the detriment of his people and sometimes to restore his people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And his ways are higher than ours. We, it doesn't always seem to make sense to us, but from his perspective, this is the appropriate thing to do. And this goes on to the to the second part. What maybe it's the nations that it's saying God is is hidden from them, but um, in this passage, it does say in verse 19 that to Israel, God has not spoken in secret or in a way that was hidden. So his promises to Israel and his role as Savior are not revoked or invalid. We see that in verses 21 and 25 in this chapter 2 as well. But God has been hidden from Israel as Savior while Israel was in exile. So in this respect, the hiddenness of God would be in response to the sin of Israel, which resulted in exile, which is related to what Elena is saying, and is consistent with the imagery of God's hiddenness elsewhere in the prophets. So this, this idea, this phrase, and there's actually a, a Hebrew phrase that we translate as hide the face, is the heart of the language of divine hiddenness in the Hebrew Bible. So the highest occurrences of this phrase of, you know, the hiding the face, God's hiding his face, occurs in Psalms and prophets. And in Psalms, it's not always clear why God is hiding himself. But in the prophets, God's hiding is typically in direct response to Israel's sin. What's interesting, though, too, in the earlier prophets, it's primarily about judgment when God's hiding his face, and there's not much hint of restoration. But as you move through the prophets, for example, by the time we get into Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, references to God's hiding are typically offset by accompanying promises of deliverance and restoration. So when God hides his face from Israel because of sin, it has the sense of a temporary sort of hiding himself as their savior while they are experiencing his judgment for, for their sin. So God hides himself in response to sin in general, it seems, from these passages. He can't even look at That's something that he can't even do because he's holy. Yeshua experienced this on the cross. And and doesn't that escalate then the magnitude of what it meant for Yeshua, who had never sinned, to put himself in our place and bear the wrath of God himself? No, and I hope I never do. I I don't ever want to get over that because this is. And this is so, there's no other religion, no other philosophy of life, no other that even comes close to this paradigm of dealing with the brokenness of humanity and the rebellion of humanity, where God himself takes on the form of of a human being, walks the face of the earth like we do, and yet never sins, and then takes upon himself the punishment that... Well, also, I mean, 
back to Moshe, because God hid himself from Moshe. I mean, you're going to turn into dust, right, if you see me? So, I mean, he's so powerful, he's so, you know, all these different things that we can't deal with it. It would be dust. Which gives us a yeah some kind of indication of the glory of God that, yeah. that we can't look at him, like look at him so much more. So whether this statement um, in in Isaiah forty five fifteen is referring to the nations or to the Israelites, God's hiddenness is due to rejection of him and his plans. And again, I think that just echoes a bit of what we heard and saw in uh, Genesis three. When we had Adam and Eve basically turning from God's word to them and turning to the words of the serpent. In a sense, rejecting God and his word, his plan, and embracing an alternative. So in essence, it's, it's not him hiding, it's we who are doing the hiding. Can it be interpreted that way? Because of our sin, is it? The word... The word picture that we seem to get more consistently is our turning. We turn away from God, we turn to idols, and we we return to God. And and we'll see this in the New Testament as well, even as we get into the book of Acts, when it talks about the gospel going forth and uh, what it means to worship the one true God and turning away from idolatry. So... um, And before, before the fall, right, am I right here... Doesn't it say something about how God communed with Adam in the evening? He walked with him in the cool of the evening. Mm-hmm. So at that point in time, we were buddies. I don't know if we were buddies. We, we had an intimate relationship mm-hmm. established, which was then broken. Mm-hmm. So this gives us, again, the, the idea of when we talk about sin disrupting and corrupting, our us and the world, we have an idea of what what has gone wrong in part based on the way things were originally set up. This is the kind of intimacy with God that he desires for us to have with him and with one another and with the created order that has been tainted, twisted, corrupted by sin. And so now this is the process of redemption that we're seeing across the canon through the Old Testament and New Testament. That's why looking at this particular description of God as creator of, of heaven and earth, I think is so significant because it shows us, highlights what is God doing because the creator is the one who can restore. The one who established it is the one who has to then restore it. And this is what we're going to get to um, hopefully before the end of our time together as we look at the epistles and how this relates to Yeshua. So we need to get back to Yeshua. <laughs> Let's head back into Matthew 25, um, Matthew 11:25 and Luke 10:21. Here we have Yeshua acknowledging that God has hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to. The Greek word here could be translated either as babes, little babies, or the simple. And attempts to identify what these things are that Yeshua is referring to. Is, there's several options. But I think in, in both Gospels, what we have, the context helps us understand what he's referring to here. Uh, in both cases, we've had Yeshua sending out the 12 in Matthew, chapter 10. And we've had Yeshua sending out the 70 or 72 in uh, Luke, 
chapter 10. Both of them are sent out to preach about the kingdom of God, and both of them come back and report what happened. And as you know, if you're familiar with these passages, some people receive the gospel and some people don't. Some people receive the message of the kingdom and some people don't. So when it comes to the, these things, when we look, again, we'll just use Matthew 11.25 as our reference. At that time, Yeshua said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to little children. Um, yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. The, these things, however you want to break it all down, are encompassing the ideas of proclamation of the kingdom and salvation that accompanies the positive reception of that message. Because this is what we've seen happening just prior to this prayer by Yeshua. So I think in general terms we could say message of the kingdom and, uh, and salvation that, that comes as, a, as people respond to it. So the reference to the wise and the simple or the infants, again, people debate... You know, who exactly are the wise? Who exactly are the simple? I think, again, in general terms, if we think about last week when we talked about Proverbs, the, the paradigm in Jewish thought is the parent teaches a child to grow to be a wise adult. <laughs> the most basic of, of terms, understanding. So the, the simple, the child, is the one who would be expected to not really know much. That's why they need to be instructed by the parent to grow into a wise adult who then would presumably be discerning. What we have here is a reversal. God has revealed things to the simple rather than the wise. And I think what the point is here is that this is divine revelation. This is what only God can reveal, what has been concealed, and that's why it's the simple who understand it and not the wise and discerning. Does that make sense? I, the point he's trying to make is this is revelation from God. So even though the wise should, there's the ones that should know, they don't get it. Because God has chosen not to reveal it to them. So it puts the emphasis on God is the revealer. And if you are one of the simple or you are one of the wise in either category, you have to ask the Lord <laughs> why you're in that position and appeal to him to reveal that information to you. Does that make sense? Because then when we move on from there, well, what it says here in verse 26, yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. That is the reason why some people get it and other people don't. It's emphasizing this is divine revelation. And then we have a transition in verse um, 27, and in Luke it would be in verse 22. Luke 10, 21 and 22. So this verse, uh, Matthew eleven twenty-seven, 27, is parallel to Luke 10, 22. It's a little hard to tell if this is a continuation of Yeshua's prayer or if he's now turning to the people who are with him and explaining this. But either way, what he states is, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
So what we have here is a very unique relationship being described between God the Father and Yeshua. And basically, in in simplest terms, Yeshua is making clear that all that he has, which probably would encompass the idea of knowledge as well as authority, and again, this is something that's debated among the scholars, but I think both would be in view, is from the Father, which such that acceptance or rejection of Yeshua is acceptance or rejection of the Father. And we see that being mentioned elsewhere. For example, in Matthew 10, a little earlier, it says, He who receives, Yeshua says, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. So we've got this close association. And we also have exclusive knowledge. In both Gospels, it is stated first that the Son is known is unknown except by the Father, and then that the Father is unknown except by the Son, leading to the conclusion that only the Son can and does reveal the Father to whom he chooses. Does that sound a little familiar? <laughs> the God the Father is the one who reveals what is concealed, and now Yeshua is saying, all things I have, God has, the Father has given to me. And now Yeshua is in the position of revealing who the Father is to those whom he chooses. Something else that I think is significant about this, the recognition that the Father is also Lord of heaven and earth seems to underscore that Yeshua's role as the mediator, as the one who reveals to people who the Father is, is communicated to him by the Father, and it's keeping with the Creator's unfolding plan of salvation. So it's not only for Israel, but also for the nations. So I think it's really significant that Yeshua is referring to God as Father, but also as Lord of heaven and earth, to underscore the fact that this role that he has, that nobody else has, of knowing the Father and revealing it to to others, is part of the Creator's unfolding plan for humanity and for all of creation in reconciling all things to himself. Mary, did you have something? Thank you. 
Yes, and the early church got it. The early church understood this unique relationship that Yeshua has with the Father and his unique role in as creator of heaven and earth, being reconciler, savior, redeemer. But it was a lot of, yeah, this is, I mean, this, this is really uh, so much bigger than I think our, our human minds could comprehend, but this is God. I mean, that's one thing I love about studying the word. It's like only God could come up with this. And we see through God's relationship with Israel how he's creating categories of understanding so that once Yeshua does show up in the flesh, there's some way to refer back to the things that were concealed and are now being revealed. They were present before. We didn't quite get it, but God opens our eyes, and now we see how Yeshua is fulfilling prophecy, how he is you know, a, a king, an anointed king, because we know that David was an anointed king, and we know that there is a continuity there, but there's also a distinctiveness about who Yeshua is that sets him apart, more, much more exalted. So, yeah, that's, those are good points, Mary. And part of what this um, also goes into this passage is that the idea of the revelation of God, the depiction of Messiah Yeshua related to creation, we have this, this idea clearly, I think, um, made in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. And these are two passages that aren't often associated with this prayer of Yeshua and Matthew 11 and uh, Luke 10. But I think we see the same idea of Yeshua revealing himself as God's son and the only one who reveals, reveals the Father to others. And the uniqueness of this father-son relationship and the role of Yeshua as mediator between God and humanity. So we're going to look at both these passages briefly um, in the time that we have left. So flip with me over to Colossians 1. Now scholars often note the similarities between the imagery of wisdom assisting God in creation from Proverbs 3 and 8 that we talked about last week with the descriptions of Yeshua in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. But even if that is the case, I mean, you'll, you'll, see, you'll see some similarities in how wisdom was described in Proverbs 3 and 8 and how Yeshua is described in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. But there's no indication, as we said last week, that wisdom, as presented in Proverbs, was a separate entity, right? We were saying how wisdom was personified as a woman really to help motivate the young son who is being taught by his parents to choose the way of wisdom and embrace it holistically, all of who you are, just like you would embrace a relationship with a spouse. So there are ways in which Yeshua is described in these passages that sound a little bit like wisdom in the Old Testament, but it's also a much more exalted description than what we saw about wisdom in the Old Testament. So the association of Yeshua with the description of Lord and a creator of heaven and earth, underscores his deity and his sufficiency as the mediator between God and people, both Jews and Gentiles, as well as the entire created order. So let's look at the image of the invisible God that we see in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. Would someone like to read that aloud for us? 
Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, the seen and the unseen, whether thrones or angelic powers or rulers or authorities. All was created through him and for him. He exists before everything, and in him all holds together. He is the head of the body, his community. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Okay, great, thanks. So here you hear, don't you, the idea that Yeshua is the image. Go ahead. What else, Rosemary? That's the creation of all Yeah. In verse 16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Again. John 1.1. Mm-hmm. John 1.1 also. And both of these passages relate back to Genesis, Genesis 1. Yeah, it's the same ideas. An interesting difference here, though, it says in verse 15 that the Son is the image of the invisible God. He's not just created in the image. He is the image. So again, this is a more highly... It is, yeah, because in this, as, as we see this progression... Through the canon, the grand narrative, now we are seeing that, yeah, okay, this is not just a human being that we're talking about. (laughs) And this is what I think we see unfold as we continue through what this could be described as a hymn in these verses here. Mm Mm-hmm. In Colossians, this this passage is Paul writing to the believers at Colossae. Uh, Right, so in the Gospels, yeah, in the Gospels, in this context of this prayer, Yeshua really is being surrounded by disciples, other followers, Jewish people at this time. So I think, again, that's why it's significant that he's referring to the Father as Lord of heaven and earth, again, because he is making it clear that this is, this is the Creator's plan, that the Son should be the one who reveals who the Father is. And referring to him as father indicates that intimacy of relationship that's unique, really, to them. So when we get to Colossians, then we see some of that being developed by the early church as their understanding now that Yeshua has 
uh, been crucified, buried, and risen and returned to the right hand of the Father. Now this is the early church reflecting on that and now teaching about who Yeshua is. So when Paul also describes Yeshua as the firstborn of all creation, the term in this context refers to his position and authority over creation. Firstborn doesn't mean just the first in a line of succession. In this context, it's referring to authority over creation. And this designation uh, designation distinguishes the Son from all that is created. And then according to 16, verse 16, the first part of it, based on his participation in the creation of all things, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. And again, unfortunately, we're you know, a little tight on time to develop this more fully. But the idea of things being created in Messiah was not just in the sense that he was preexistent or the ideal archetype of creation, but in the sense that creation occurred within the sphere of Messiah. That in his person resided the creative energy, so to speak, that produced all of creation. Now, again, we're trying to grasp something that is hard to grasp. And remember when we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, who was the person creating everything? God. There was nobody else there. But now what we're seeing, and this is where the, the deity of Yeshua is really being unfolded, is that Yeshua was there at creation also. Mm-hmm. It is mysterious. And I think the part that's even more, I mean, it's just more, I don't know, heavy to me, is in my Bible, it says, and he holds everything together. Yeah. He holds everything So, you know, we're together because this earth isn't in the shape that it's in because he's holding it together. Yeah. Right. Know? Yeah. So what we have is, Yeshua is is present at creation, and there are. I mean, we could we could pick apart this um, more specifically, phrase by phrase. Unfortunately, we don't have the time to do that. But the fact that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, speak of him being preexistent when things are created, and again speaks of his sovereignty. And this has to be the case because if the Creator is going to be the Redeemer also. And Yeshua is our Redeemer. Then Yeshua was present at creation, and we know that you know the Spirit of God was there. But I think it's it's helpful for me as I've been meditating on these passages, studying this topic. You know, we looked at Genesis one and one in particular, how God speaks and things come to be. Now, how do you separate the words of a person from the person? Are they distinct from the person? You wouldn't say the words are equated with the person. But it is the person. Yeshua is the word of God. So in a sense, he is present with God in creation, but he's distinct from the Father. How how does that happen? They're mysterious. (laughs) It's mysterious. It is. But this is what, what we are understanding. And I think the takeaway from this is understanding that this passage, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1, they're all very high Christological passages. In other words, they really paint a picture of who Yeshua is 
in very high divine lofty terms. So that it's clear that Yeshua really is God. And that's what we're finding, I think, as we look at how the, this description of the creator of heaven and earth now is being so closely associated with Yeshua himself. There's so much more we could say about this, but yeah. we're going to keep moving. But what I do want to establish and get back to um, what Diane had brought up, in verse 16, I think we, 15 and 16, we get the clear indication that Yeshua was involved with creation when all things were made. What we see in verse 17 when she points out that he holds all things together indicates his ongoing involvement with creation. So it's significant to note this assertion of Yeshua's accomplishment as the second of the twofold aspect of being both the source and the sustainer of creation that we said was clear about God at creation. He is the source of all life and he's the one who sustains it. So here we have now Yeshua was there when all things were created and he holds all things together. So he's functioning in the same way. So Paul appeals to the fact that the one who created all things and sustains all things is the only one worthy of their worship. In addition, Messiah's role in sustaining all things provides further basis for his ability to reconcile all things to God and the appropriateness of him doing so. So at the end of the passage that Elan read read to us, verse 20, well, 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Hugely significant statement here. Now we're going to look over at Hebrews 1. Then I think even ups the ante more. <laughs> So exciting. So in this passage, we have Yeshua described as the exact representation of God. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 is often treated as two different units. Verses 1 through 4 is one unit, and 5 through 14, another unit. <clears throat> Basically, again, if we had the time to actually go through all of this, what seems to be the case is, there are seven Christological statements made in the first four verses, and then the rest of the chapter makes seven statements from the Old Testament that elaborate on those first few verses, the Christological statements. And that, that whole chapter leads up to what we have at the beginning of chapter 2, the first couple of verses. So first let's just read... Let me read the first four verses of chapter 1, and then we'll look at the first couple verses of chapter 2. So in chapter 1 of Hebrews, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So again, we're hearing similar ideas that we just read about in Colossians 1. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So now again, who created by his word? In Genesis 1. Yeah. And now who is sustaining by his word? But specifically, the sun. Yes. So again, it's lifting up Yeshua as God also. So then it goes on. Um, After he had provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, indicating that he completed his earthly ministry, uh, at least the first time he came. And then verse 4. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now let's look at the beginning of chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not, what? Drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So here we have this contrast now. Okay, so if the message that God gave through his messengers, the angels, was significant, and when we didn't obey, there was punishment, how much more so when now God's son is bearing this message? How much more so do we need to pay attention to this and be obedient to it, that this is so great a salvation and then the fact that it is a message we have heard, but it also is accompanied by signs and wonders, actions. We're going to go back to this. We're going to see this when we go into Acts next week. And how these two ideas are closely associated in Acts as the early church is going forth, proclaiming the word of God. <laughs> and it's accompanied by signs and miracles also. Again, it's in continuity with what we've seen the creator of heaven and earth do throughout the Old Testament and now into the New Testament as well. Does this have a message of urgency to you? Like in 2, 1 through 4, it seems like to me there's a message of urgency. Like, pay attention. Listen. Mm -hmm. Something's about to happen here. I need you to really listen to this. It's really important. Yes. Yeah, and you know when scholars talk about who this letter was written to, we don't know exactly, but it does seem to be a congregation, a community of believers who are experiencing difficulties, and it sounds like some of them are thinking about just going back to Judaism and and leaving Yeshua, belief in Yeshua. And so there is a sense of urgency. Don't pay attention to what we've heard. And it has been confirmed by witnesses and signs and miracles. And, yeah. So, and I think it applies to us today as well. Mm-hmm, Diane? Well, I'm just thinking, though, Yeshua is, he's kept his being for thousands of years. It, I can't imagine what he was like to be around. He, he has had more impact, I think, than just about anyone ever. Because, I mean, it just, 
he lives with us now, and, but, and I think that's why he's still so important, because he is alive in our lives, but for somebody to have this much impact that continues on, is, it's just, I, I can't get my, put my, my, mind around, my mind around that. Yeah. Well, and part of it is because he wasn't just a person. He was God. Yeah. 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 And God will accomplish his purposes, period. God is still sovereign. Period. There's no one competing. <laughs> no one can even come close. So God will come. And again, this is what, what I love about looking at a, a theme like this, understanding who God is throughout the canon of Scripture, because we get the sense that God is moving things forward. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it. A lot of times it doesn't feel like it, and it looks like things are out of control. Yet, when we dwell on who God is and his character and how he has been unfolding through crazy times in the past, that should give us hope that he will carry us through to the future. And that's what I hope we'll get to on our last week together when we talk about Second Peter 3 in Revelation. How God will sustain us. <laughs> it does. It is a sanity seat. Oops. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Five more minutes. More or less. So. <laughs> so the... Um, here we are. All right, we talked about the two um, two literary units in chapter one, and the first one we just read, Christological statements, statements about who the Messiah is, that are now. It seems like the rest of the chapter now elaborates on that. So here we've already gotten a sense that Yeshua is um, the, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. We're going to hear that elaborated upon even more so with the use of the Old Testament passages being applied to him now. And again, in light of time, we'll just streamline. And what we have in verse 3, that I just read part of it, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. If we look down then into the second part that starts with verse 5 and goes to the end of the chapter, what we have in verses 10 and 11, we could go 10 to 12. What we have is now a reference to Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, being introduced to specify the relationship of the exalted son to creation. In establishing the son as the heir in verses 2 to 4, earlier in chapter 1, who is enthroned in the heavenly realm, sitting down at the right hand of the majesty, the authors describe the son's role as ruler over all. His function as Lord is lasting, righteous, and supreme. The application of Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, underscores his deity by identifying him in terms reserved for the one true God, creator of heaven and earth, in the beginning. So when we look at verses 10 through 12 in Hebrews 1, he also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. 
They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will will never end. So here is a passage that was applied to God in the Old Testament, and now it's being applied to the Son here. And it points to his eternality. That he will... And again, we'll look at in Second Peter this idea of, you know, heaven and earth, the old heaven, old heavens and earth will be done away with, and we'll have a new heavens and new earth. So we have a kind of a sense of that here, that the sun is the one who's going to be involved in that process of getting rid of the old heavens and earth and establishing the new heavens and the new earth. I bet you the, uh, whoever his audience was and who was talking to at that time were truly amazed at what he was saying about the Son and the Father, because David, which they had read about, has spoke this in the prophets, what, over 2,000 years ago, prior to that, and they read it's like, who is this person talking like this to something that we read about right now? That, to me, was amazing. Those guys, whoever his readers were, were sitting in the audience listening to him, like, my God, who is this person? Yeah, talk about shaking up your categories. <laughs> so here we have in verse 2, the Son is depicted as the agent through whom God created in the universe, but in verse 10, he is addressed as the creator. And he is envisioned as the source of all things. And then also in uh, verses 11 to 12, they describe the Son as sustaining or carrying all things by his powerful word and the ability uh, to maintain things, as we talked about in verse 3, um, when we look down at, at verses 11 and 12. He's sustaining all things in 11 and 12, and then he's renewing all things. I'm sorry, in, in 3, he's holding all things together, and then in 11 and 12, he's renewing all things. And then in verses 13 and 14, It says, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Who are the ones who inherit salvation? We do. And we get this picture that the angels look on and are puzzled by this because this is not something they participate in. But Yeshua died for Humanity. We're the ones created in the image of God, not even the angels. At least what we have in the scriptures. Sure, there's a, a lot more about angels we don't know, but <laughs> but they are. We are the ones for whom Yeshua died and, and is the one who um, redeems us. He's the one who redeems us. And it could be that, as one uh, uh, scholar suggests, that. This opening depiction of the enthroned son is necessary for the author's entire intent of this letter of Hebrews. That by establishing Yeshua's exaltation in the opening chapter, the author of Hebrews asserts that the salvation of humanity rests with the one who is enthroned forever above all that exists. And Yeshua's redemptive and eschatological purposes are based in his divine identity as creator, the source and sustainer of all things. And this is why the angels worship him. How much more then should we, who receive the benefit of salvation that he has provided, how much more then should we worship the Son? We 
which I think is critical to the whole message of the book of Hebrews. So what are the implications for us then? We kind of started to touch on some of that. But as you think about this idea of how Yeshua really is described and presented to us as not just the one through whom all creation happened, but as the creator. And then the one who (coughs) died for us and sustains us now, who is sitting at the right hand of the Father. What kind of implication does that have for us today? What comes to your mind when you think about that? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We can't really afford to turn away from him. We really can't. I mean, if he's sustaining and it says he is, then we can't really. I mean, well, he's left us enough just like him, Holy Spirit. And that's what we lose right now. That's what our effort is right now. Until he returns. It's an interesting concept to me. At least if they cannot have any redemption. Because there's no final redemption for the angels. And that's one of the things that we didn't really have time to look at closely in Colossians 1. But it makes clear that Yeshua is over every power, authority, dominion. And for the Colossian church, the context of the heresies that they were facing really did have to do with supernatural powers. And so Paul is saying there is no supernatural or natural power, visible or invisible, that's greater than Yeshua. Knowing God's personality, I would think that he would be crying in his heart because his angels had no redemption. Hmm. Hmm. You know, the church in Colossae, they were seeing and experiencing some really powerful gods, idol gods. They were. And so God had to step up and say, you know what? It's nothing. See me, okay? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Greater is he who is in us than he is in the world. And I think that is so important because something that I think we can slip into as believers is to think that there is an equal and opposite power to God. And there's not even close. So really then we should be encouraged that even if we're suffering now, this is momentary light affliction. And that we do look forward to And this is not the whole story. Yeah. This is not the end of the story. Yeah, no. Whatever we face here, because Yeshua is coming back. Yes. Yeah. So. I mean, we really have. It's almost like we. I don't even think we know suffering. When I think about the Holocaust, I think about all the different phases. I think about the Inquisition. Mm-hmm. We don't really know. I mean, suffering to the, to that awful extent. And I, and I, I we hear know, yeah. Came from a tree. Yeah, and I think there's. I understand your point there, and I think there's a lot of truth there. What I don't want to do, though, is minimize yeah. the very real suffering that that people do experience that may be even internal, emotional, that is not due to outside persecution. But, I mean, we are broken on every level. Of course. 
And but the, the point is, are we going to the Creator who sustains us, who yeah. can sustain us, yeah. or are we trying to get those areas healed or sustained by other things that are not not His given to us? So yeah, Mary, do you want to make the final comment? And that really is, for where we are in salvation history now, the fact that, that Yeshua has re- returned to the right hand of the Father means that we have the Spirit of God within us, which has not been the case prior to the, the resurrection and ascension of Yeshua. And now God will not call us to something that he doesn't enable us to accomplish. Now, if I could just actually get that from my head into the rest of my life and, and, and walk in that reality, that would help a lot. So let me close close this in a word of prayer along those lines. Lord, we do thank you and praise you that you are so much more than we can really even comprehend. But thank you that you reveal yourself to us truly, even though it's not completely because we couldn't handle it. <laughs> But thank you that you are true, that you are trustworthy, that you are faithful, that you are able, that you really do hold our lives in your hands, and that we are yours, so that you will watch over and protect us, and that really no matter what we go through in this life, we do have the hope of rest with you for all eternity, to be in your presence, face to face with you. I just can't even imagine it right now. But I pray that for each of us tonight, um, in the day in and day out of life, there are a lot of things that weigh on us. I pray that you would show us what it looks like to trust you in every one of those areas. That we really would walk in the power of your spirit. And that the nations, those around us, would see you and, and realize it's, it's not us, but it's our God within us and around us and working for us that is um, revealing himself, that others would come to know you and